We have uh, obviously been studying uh, the epistle of James, and we're also going to be looking at 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, uh, these uh, half-brothers of Jesus Christ and what they had to say and what we know as the Catholic epistles. But also this year, on occasion, we're taking little side roads to look at individual texts in other places that have to do with the man and a key venue in his life or a key circumstance in his life. And today and next Thursday, we want to look at the man and his home. And so today we want to look at a text on marriage, and then we want to look at the following text on parenting. And some of you who may be single may be wondering, what does this have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with you. I was talking to our fellows uh, just this week, uh, all of whom are single, and talking about marriage is not only important because you might become married, but it also has to do with the way in which you relate to the opposite gender, and especially if you're going to relate to them in a dating relationship. I think there's some hints that are given us in how to be a man, and certainly when we look at parenting, uh, there are a lot of parallels with how we care for anybody who's junior to us how we care for them, how we nurture them, how we disciple them. And so uh, there are lessons to be learned for all of us in terms of uh, the Christian family. Also, as uh, whether, whether we're single or married, we all have a huge stake in the welfare of the home in our society as well as in our churches. And so it's good for us to know how a home is supposed to operate, how relationships are supposed to take place, so that we can encourage one another in the same, uh, just like we would here in Amen Bible Study. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 5. Turn there if you will. We'll look at verse, verses 21 through 33, which of course have to do with the Christian marriage, with marriage in general. You'll notice that the apostle, back in verse 18, in speaking about how we are to be wise and not foolish, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So he's saying, in order to be a wise man, don't be intoxicated with, with alcohol. Be filled, rather, with the Holy Spirit. Come under the influence of God Himself instead of under the influence of alcohol. And then the first thing he talks about is our worship. The first evidence of the Holy Spirit having taken over in our lives is that we become worshipers in private and in public and in all occasions, as you see there. Uh, and then in verse 21, he takes up the second subject that comes as a result of being filled with the Spirit, and that is that we submit to all the authorities in our lives. We'll see what one of those is right now, as well as one next week. But in the midst of that teaching about Spirit-filled submission to proper authorities in our lives. Uh, he also speaks about the ones who are in authority. As a matter of fact, he has more to say to them than he does to those who are submitting to that authority. So that's the context of the, of the Scriptures. And we're going to pick up with the uh, participle in verse 21, where Paul says, "...submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and 
hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, what we want to notice first of all in verses 21 through 24 is that wives must submit to their husbands. Okay, that's enough for Amen Bible study. That'll do it. Your assignment now is everyone go home and explain to your wives what they're supposed to do. They'll really appreciate You probably won't be here anymore for Amen Bible study after that comment. But I want us to to look at this because uh, we find ourselves often embarrassed by this text. We live in the egalitarian West, in case you hadn't noticed. We're democratic, we're equalitarians, everybody's considered equal and interchangeable in all their parts, uh, and that even now flows over into uh, you, you can decide which gender you want to be. It's just your choice. God had nothing to do with it, so if you don't like your gender, you can change that too. Everything's interchangeable, and uh, we don't even know what it means to be human anymore, but we don't know what it means to be of one gender. And so it seems embarrassing to a lot of us when we say one gender is supposed to submit to the other gender in marriage. It's also particularly embarrassing because I know a good number of your wives, and if I were to average it all out, I don't think you come out ahead. So it seems if anybody's supposed to submit, it should be the thicker-headed one should submit to the brighter person. And I also know some of your wives, and I don't, not only do you not come out ahead intellectually, but morally uh, you're behind the eight ball. And I would even say in terms of personality, I find it. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't seem to make any sense at all that one gender should be submitting to the other. But what you have here is the spirit-filled life, and Paul outlines for us in the Christian household, which was a working entity. You know that in the first century... Uh, you would often, your jobs would be within a household. So the father of the house would also be the master of the slaves and master of the workers. And you know in the first century, uh, slaves were not necessarily uneducated people. The tutors for your children who were very educated people, sometimes philosophers and artists who were captured in war in other places would be brought in to be slaves, to be artists and teachers within the household. So they had different educational levels, but nonetheless they were slaves. But the household would operate as an economic entity. And so he speaks about husbands and wives. He speaks about parents and children. He speaks about masters and slaves. And he says the spirit-filled life affects you in all those relationships. So you may have been an adult and never heard of Jesus Christ, and then you get converted, and now you're looking at this household that you're working in. He gads. It's, it's a mess. And if you're a wife, you become a Christian. And what do you do with this non-Christian husband and so on? Paul says, you're full of the Spirit, and here's what a Spirit-filled person does. Uh, He or she looks for those ways to submit to God-ordained authority. You see the same thing in Peter's epistle, where he's particularly, and Paul in Romans, particularly concerned that Christians will leave a bad testimony by disobeying civil authorities, by thinking that now that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, I don't have to give attention anymore to these civil magistrates. I don't have to give attention anymore to the Roman emperor. Oh, yes, you do. Uh, In the Lord. So you never submit in a way that dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ. There is such a thing as civil disobedience. However, generally speaking, whenever a command is, is consistent with the Scriptures, you obey it, and you obey the civil offices that are over you. So in the same way, he's saying, there is authority, there's an authority structure, God ordained in the household. And it seems to be saying here very clearly that the authority structure is husbands are to bear the authority in the home. If you don't like this, I'm really sorry for a number of reasons, but it's here. It's in Ephesians, it's in Colossians, it's in 1 Peter. It's supported with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. So you're getting it fairly pervasively throughout the scriptures. So this is not just an isolated text that uh, one can take issue with. But let's look for a moment at the question, what is Christian submission? And we want to be uh, careful here that we don't overstate or understate what Christian submission is. The, the word here, hupotasso in Greek, is the word for subordinating oneself. And you'll find it 40 times in the Scriptures, 23 times by the Apostle Paul. 
So it's a word that, that refers to how we put ourselves under the authority of another person. So it's used very commonly in the Scriptures and by the Apostle Paul. But there are several aspects of this submission, certainly for Christians, that are important. One is this submission is always to be voluntary. You're not to wait until someone beats you over the head. And if you're a wife, you're not supposed to wait until your husband explains to you what the Bible says about it. You're to research it yourself. You're to take this as your task yourself and voluntarily do so. Secondly, Christian submission is wholehearted. It's done without uh, grumbling. And so it should be done with us. And whether you like the outcome of the election or not, you should be submitting yourself to those who are in elected office over you and doing so without grumbling. That doesn't mean that you don't have political opinions. It doesn't mean that you don't submit those opinions on public policy to those who are in positions to do something about it. But it means that you don't grumble or make excuses for yourself. Because look what he says in verse 24 about the wives. He says, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wow. Now, they are to submit in the Lord as well. So, for example, if a, a woman is married, they're both non-Christians, she becomes a Christian, her husband despises Christians, and there's no way he's ever going to church. Well, what does she do? Well, I know some wives who will tell me, well, you know, my husband, he just gets him so upset, I think I'll just submit to my husband and stay home and not worship. A baloney, uh, your husband is not Jesus. He's supposed to take the role of Jesus, which he's not doing, but you have a commitment to worship the Lord whether it kills you or not. So even a wife, her submission to her husband is conditioned upon it being in the Lord. And that's the third major principle of Christian submission. It's always conditional. And you can look back at the American Revolution and however you argue for the justification of revolting against England, you'd have to do it uh, in some way that would be explained Christianly. And sometimes that's not so easy. But you'll see in the Scriptures, there are examples where people don't obey the authorities. The Egyptian midwives, fortunately, did not obey the order of Pharaoh to kill all the little Jewish boys, and that's how we ended up with Moses. Likewise with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the wise men obviously did not uh, carry out Herod's order to bring back word of where Jesus was, and so Jesus was able himself to escape to Egypt. And uh, you have other instances in the Scriptures where this is true, certainly with Peter and John. When they are preaching, the Sanhedrin told, tells them, absolutely stop preaching in the name of this Jesus. And they said to him, them, you remember the famous words, you tell us, who should, we, who should we obey, you or God? So when authorities put you in an impossible situation where you cannot obey them and also obey the Lord, you obey the Lord. And you bear whatever consequences come your way. This is called conscientious objection. And there needs always to be a place for conscientious objection. I find that category uh, evaporating in our culture. We don't know what conscience is, and we don't know what absolute truth or morality is, and therefore we don't have a place for conscientious objection in our politics. But that's what Christian submission is. It's the desire to glorify God through submitting to God-ordained authorities voluntarily, without grumbling, and only in the Lord. So if we're required to do something we mustn't or we're required, uh, forbidden to do something that we must, then we disobey the authorities. It's, that's what an issue of conscience is. When your conscience that you must do something or must not do something is being contravened by the authority, then you, you do not submit. You only submit in the Lord. Now, notice the second question we need to ask is to whom do we submit? And here's an interesting uh, exegetical question. Look at verse 21 again. Paul says that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will submit to one another. That's to whom you submit, to one another. And so, of course, many will take this word uh, or this concept and say, well, you see what he's saying. It's mutual submission. And I know some uh, egalitarians, Christian egalitarians. By the way, let me define these terms. Uh, commonly, the word egalitarian, is, it just comes from the word equal. The equalitarians suggest that uh, the genders are equal in every way and they bear equal authority in their relationship. The word complementarian 
to mean that we complement one another is the word that's used to describe the view that, yes, we are equal before the Lord in our value, but we do carry out different functions, particularly with respect to bearing authority in that particular relationship. So complementarians would say men and women are equal, uh, Galatians 3.28, but that we bear different roles and one has authority and the other submits. An equalitarian would deny that. An equalitarian will look at this and say, see, he says to submit to one another, and so it's mutual submission. Now, there are places in the Scriptures, including in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul shows us that we are to submit to one another. So, for example, in our life together, as uh, if we're Christian men here, then we learn to submit to one another. We, we are concerned about each other's interests more than our own. We, we take to heart uh, each other's lives and so on. So we submit to each other in the Lord. We submit as brothers. So there's a place for that. But look at the way this, this chapter is structured, and I think you'll see that's not what the apostle means here. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in the next verse, he just says, wives to your own husbands. <coughs> the word submit in English is not there in Greek. <coughs> so what you have is, He's saying, submit to one another, and then he's showing you in three examples, brothers and sisters, this is what I mean. Wives to your husbands, and then look at chapter 6, verse 1, children to your parents, and then slaves to your masters. So when, in, in this case, when he's saying submit to one another, that's a, a superscription, that's a, a, an opening phrase, followed by what he means by that. In other words, he's talking about submission in the household structure. Talking about submission where there is God-ordained authority in the household structure. So we believe in both. Mutual submission in all of our Christian relationships, but then there's a particular submission to authority in civil structures and in household structures. And, of course, we see it in church structures as well in, in 1 Timothy 2, using the same theology of gender with respect to authority in church and marital life. So here, look at this, and we'll see to whom we submit, one another. And then you see the three examples. Now notice also that he says here, wives submit to your own husbands. So it doesn't mean that a woman is to submit to every man she ever meets. She doesn't necessarily submit to her boyfriend, but she submits to her own husband. So it's a, it's a peculiar, it's a specific relationship that's being discussed here. So, for example, in civic life, if Hillary Clinton were elected president, we submit to a woman in the Lord. We submit to Hillary Clinton. If we have a, a female mayor or a female teacher, we submit to that teacher regardless of gender. So he's not making a sweeping statement that the female gender submits to the male gender. He's making a specific statement about the household and ab about the marriage relationship in particular here. So that's to whom we submit. Now, why do we submit? You get it throughout this first, uh, these first verses. Look at the word Lord in verse 22, as to the Lord. Look at verse 23, as Christ is the head of the church. Look at verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's why we do it. So it's out of fear of Christ. Now, this category, fear of Christ, this is the only place, I think, where you have the phrase fear of Christ. But throughout the Scriptures, you have the phrase fear of God. In fact, you'll find it 150 times in the Bible. And we've lost the ability to fear God. But it is of the very essence of our Christian discipleship. The fear of the Lord, says Solomon, is the beginning of wisdom. If I can quote a, a renowned Presbyterian theologian, uh, uh, of the last century, John Murray, he says, the fear of the Lord is the soul of all godliness. The essence of wickedness is the absence of the fear of the Lord. So yes, he is our father, but we fear him, we reverence him, we revere him. And uh, this leads to everything else in the Christian experience. So we do it, we, we submit to civil authorities because uh, we fear the Lord, not because we fear for our lives from the civil authorities necessarily. Now the question is, uh, this is really great teaching, 
And normally, we don't get a room full of men and talk to them about how their wives should submit to them. Uh, but this is amen. We have a full hour, so we covered that in just a few minutes. And you'll see the rest of this time is going to be dealing with the men. But I want to ask you one question. What do you do if your wife is not helping you out very much in your marriage because she doesn't submit to you? And honestly, I bet a good number of us this morning while I've been talking about this, you've just been sitting there smoldering. thinking about what you're going to say to her when you get home. Oh, what'd you study? Name and Bible study, honey. You're not going to believe this. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> what do you do when she goes, ah? And sometimes you feel like she's doing that quite regularly in your life. What do you do when your wife's not helping you very much by showing you respect and submitting to you, the husband, in the Lord? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, how are you doing submitting to authorities in your life? I find that uh, those who are supposed to be submitting to us, whether they're young children or people in the workplace or people in your marriage, uh, they notice how you do in submitting to your board of directors, how you do in submitting to your session if you're a pastor, how you do in... Uh, submitting to the civil authorities and to the policemen and to other people in your life. And I find normally that it's easier to submit to someone in submission than it is to submit to someone who's a rebel against all authorities. So begin with your own life of submission. If you're, if you're really if you find yourself at times getting really irritated with a lack of respect or submission from your wife, just Think about how you're dealing with Jesus Christ yourself. Are you submitting to Him? Are you, are you be, being as big a pain in the neck? I'll tell you what, probably worse. So I'd start there. Second question you can ask yourself. How difficult am I making it for this woman to respect me? Am I living a respectable life? Is there something in my life that's easily honorable? Is there something that she can be pleased with or proud of to be married to me? Is there a tenderness that's coming from me that makes my authority and my influence and my power in her life something that's very attractive to her? You know, when I see husbands who pray with their wives, who are gentle with their wives, who are considerate toward their wives, I've never heard one woman in all my life say about a husband like that, you know, I really resent having to submit to him. Never had that happen. So if you find a lack of respect or a lack of submission, you might ask yourself, is there a lack of tenderness and is there a lack of dignity in the way I'm holding my office as husband? That's for beginners. Number two, if that happens to you, let me suggest something else. Read your own mail. Instead of reading this, okay, we covered the scriptures, we talked about it, But I want you to focus on these next verses. You'll notice that we're covering three verses on wives. Well, there happen to be nine verses on husbands. And there's a reason for that. And we'll get into that in a moment. And thirdly, I think in the last resort, if you've got the uh, self-confidence to do this, you can sit down with your wife and ask her for her help. And uh, explain to her how you're built and that it's important to you that you sense that she has respect for you, and is there anything you can do to gain her respect, and that it will, you think it will really help you in being able to serve her if you can sense respect from her. You can have that conversation. But if your marriage is at that point, be ready for her to tell you how you can gain her respect. You'll probably get your ear full, and you probably need it. So I'm just warning you, you can always... Go to your wife and ask her that and approach her, but you need to be ready to get the main part of the lesson in your own ear instead of in hers. So ultimately, why do we do this? It's for the honor of God. Why is he honored this way? Well, I think you get it here in the picture. He says that clearly the wife has the assignment of playing the role of the church, and the husband has the assignment of playing the role uh, of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. So it's, here's the way I would put it, and this is the way I explain it, especially to women who wonder why in the world they're supposed to be submitting to someone who has less IQ than they do. 
And basically, I just say to him, look, uh, sister, this is what it is. It's like a play. And we're all putting on a play. And when we put on the play, you're given your part. You're given a script. And any good actress, any good actor, when they get the script, they enter into that role. Uh, you know, when Daniel Day-Lewis played Abraham Lincoln, uh, they said, his friend said, he was, he was Lincoln for three years, you know. You talk to Daniel Day-Lewis, you think you're talking to Lincoln. You know, he's, in the, he's just in the role. And that's what, that's what a good actor does. He gets into the role. And I just say to the wife, that's your role, to honor the Lord, to display to the entire world how Christ is relating to His people and there's a human relationship that shows it. And therefore, you're to play your role in that. It doesn't mean anything about your native intelligence or your ability to be a leader. It just is the script you've been given. Get into the role and play it. And play it happily. Play it wholeheartedly. Play it without grumbling. Play it because you're becoming the very person in the script. And I have to say, I think that's part of what it means to be a man and to be a woman. And in being a woman and being a man, it means that you're playing your role in such a way that you recognize and appreciate the other role for what it is. So that when your wife does show you respect and when she is submitting to you, you know, the temptation is to think, well, of course, I would respect me too. You know, of course, I would love for someone like me to lead me. Instead of thinking, this woman's amazing. Uh, <clears throat> she's playing her script. She's honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. It really is not fundamentally about me. There's so many reasons not to respect me. This is amazing that she's doing this. So she is to be commended for playing her role. How about your role? Your role is the role of Christ. Let's begin to look at it. In verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives. Six times in the text, love your wives. Love them. Everybody here has some idea of what it means to love. That means to sacrifice your own interests for the sake of somebody else. Love your wives. Sacrifice your own interests for their interests. Six times in the text. He takes nine verses to do it, to drill into our heads. This is the big challenge. Your script is the script of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did He ever love us? laying down his life, entering into his passion, being born of a woman and born under the law, as Paul says in Galatians 4, that we might be set free and be the children of God. He gave us everything by emptying himself of everything. That's what the husband does. That's your script. Pick it up. Read your script. Get into it. Play the role. You lay down your life. So we see this over and over again. How we are to love our wives is throughout the Scriptures in the Old Testament and the New. I've given you several examples there. Now, first of all, verse 25b, what's the extent of his, of, of his love? It's death. The extent of the husband's love is his own death. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Christ <clears throat> takes the initiative toward us. And gentlemen, we're to take the initiative in sacrifice toward our wives. This is the Christly role. This is what a woman deeply desires. She's made to desire this from you because you were made to give it, to take the initiative in sacrificing. Let me just speak for a moment to those of you who are single. When you're thinking about dating a woman or approaching a woman or thinking about having a cup of coffee with her, don't wait until she asks you. Don't wait until a girlfriend suggests that the two of you might go off somewhere. You take the initiative. And I find men now are so disinclined to take the initiative. You know why? Simple. Insecurity. You don't want to be rejected. You, and you also don't want to build up her expectations because then you're afraid of dashing them later. And so you just kind of weasel your way into some relationship and eventually you kind of end up together and oh surprise well and it's kind of mutual you're kind of mutually pursuing each other that's a bunch of bs if i can say it really is look at the scriptures did jesus christ just kind of mosey up to you and see if you all had something in common and see if you had an interest in him and then he would have an interest in you and you hated him and he came after you he pursued you and it seems to me the role of a Christian man in romantic relationships is to take the initiative. 
And we're going to see the initiative you take toward them is not to take them to bed together, but it's rather to give to them, to, to sanctify them. But you're taking the initiative. And gentlemen, in marriage, you take the initiative. You take the initiative in a number of ways. You take the initiative in saying kind things. You take the initiative in asking for forgiveness. You take the initiative in giving way on arguments of preference. And let me say, 99% of your arguments have nothing to do with principles. They're all about preference. Isn't it true? The stupid things we argue about. What does the Christ figure do? The Christ figure is the first one to give way on his preferences. So you think the curtain should be purple and she thinks it should be green. I suggest you get some green curtains real fast. It doesn't make any difference. It's not a matter of principle. You're the one who gives way. doesn't mean you don't register an opinion. doesn't mean you're not there to help. It does, surely doesn't mean you're not there to say, hey, that's really great, that's beautiful, thanks for all the work you did. Uh, but we're taking the initiative in laying our preferences down and laying our lives down. This is what it means to be the Christ figure. So we're the, we're the first ones. We're the initiators in giving up stuff. If you're married, you have an opportunity to be very dramatic, if you will, in the way that you're giving your life away to someone. And it's a high privilege to be given that assignment. And you don't want to enter into that marriage then like most of us do. And we're thinking what's in it for us. I remember years ago, I was with a friend of mine who was 36 years old and I was about 33. I was a young pastor. I was in his kitchen and he was telling me that he remembered exactly what his thoughts were when his wife was coming down the aisle. And she was a beautiful woman. And he said, you know, I was thinking, he said, Sandy, this is embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you the truth. When she was coming down the aisle, I was thinking, she, I, I, she, he said, I was thinking, I love 100% cotton shirts and she loves to iron. This is going to be a great relationship. <laughs> and he, he said, honestly, he said, I'm, 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 ter- I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to confess this to you, but I am confessing. That, I, I, that thought crossed my mind. I'll tell you another thought that crossed my mind that I love spaghetti and she is a great Italian cook. He said, that thought crossed my mind. And then he said, I took one look at her and I said, I can't wait to get between the sheets with this woman. She's absolutely gorgeous. He said, I was thinking all those things. He said, the last thing I would ever think when she was coming down the aisle is what I swore I would do when she got up there, which was that I would love her in sickness and in health, uh, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. And he said, I had no idea I'd be doing what I am now. Let me tell you what he was doing then. We were in the kitchen. His 36-year-old wife was about 15 feet away from us in their little bedroom, in this little two-bedroom house. And she was groaning in travail as she died of cancer. And he said, I never imagined that I'd be picking her up and carrying her to the bathroom and cleaning her up afterwards and then putting her back in her bed and spoon-feeding her gruel while she groaned at every bite. But he said, you know, the irony is that's what I promised on my wedding day. I didn't, get, I didn't promise any of the other stuff. I didn't promise that I would receive spaghetti and 100% cotton shirts and great sex. He said, what I promised was that I would sacrifice completely for her. He said, I had no idea what I was doing on the wedding day. How about you? Do you know what you did? You took a vow. Have you ever considered those vows? I, Sandy, take you, Allison, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses that I'll be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live, loving and faithful in every condition. I'll take the initiative to be the Christ figure in this play that we've got going. And it ain't easy because you know why? She's a sinner. You know who else is a sinner? You. You put those two sinners together, you've got yourself a problem. And it's going to take grace to overcome all the resistance. And with this picture of Christ and the church being displayed beautifully before the world, let me tell you something. Satan wants to tear that up. He wants to shred it. He doesn't like any picture of Christ and his loyalty to the church. So he will obviously seek to destroy what God has created to display the beauty of his love for us. So be ready and be on your guard. Now notice then the extent of this love is death. The goal of the husband's love is her glory. Verses 26 and 27, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, so that he might present her 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You say, boy, I sure wish my wife didn't have a wrinkle. That's not exactly what he means. He means to present her holy and without blemish. So we sanctify our wives through cleansing them for glory. We're actually not just husbands, we're cupids. We're preparing her for her relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, her ultimate bridegroom. We're getting her ready. That's the job. Look, the word husband means to take care of a vineyard. The word shepherd means to take care of sheep. So really it's the same thing. Husbands are the pastors in the home. That's another reason why the whole home, if it's healthy, will be in submission to the family pastor. So you're the pastor. So there's no possible way this church or any church can be pastored by people like me if people like you don't pastor your own homes. One way of looking at your pastors in your church is that they're the pastor of the pastors. That's the reason it's always a great idea to have a men's Bible study. What is that? That's the pastor's Bible study. We're studying so that we can nurture and care for the entire church of the Lord Jesus. So you've got to see yourself this way. So whatever skills you expect with your pastor, his love, his communication, his listening skills, his leadership in prayer and the Word, his nurturing of other people, whatever you expect of them, you should expect of yourself and ask the Lord to make you a pastor in the church because your role is to present somebody else spotless and blameless before the heavenly bridegroom. you got a lot of work to do. She needs to be loved through a lot of circumstances. She needs her hand held through a lot of circumstances in order to learn to trust Christ with all of her heart. And you're the one who, whom Christ has assigned this task of showing her that. And this lifts her up and it elevates her. So often we come into marriage just like my friend who told me what he was thinking when she came down the aisle. And so often that's still what we're thinking about our marriages. What are we getting out of it? What's in it for me instead of what's in it for her? To see myself as a living sacrifice to give to her and to lift her up as the queen in the home. You know, one time I was talking to my first pastor's wife, who was a wonderful pastor's wife and a great woman. In fact, I was with him not too long ago. Um, he's still living and, and has a serious cancer. So I went to visit him uh, in the Atlanta area not too long ago. But I remember years ago, uh, his wife, Debbie, she said to me, and she's an egalitarian, but she said to me, you know, I hear these women all the time saying uh, that they're equal to, they want to be equal to their husbands in every way. And she said, you know, it occurs to me, I don't want to be equal with my husband. I don't want to come down to that level. She said, Roger so elevates me and lifts me up. Why would I want to come down and be equal with him? <laughs> Gentlemen, can your wife say this? That it would be a come down for them to be equal with you. Because in your ministry to them, you're always, there's an updraft in your love for them. You're always lifting them up. That's our role. And what makes it so difficult is that you have some very strongly felt needs that only that wife can satisfy and when they're not satisfied, you get frustrated and angry and resentful. That's the big challenge. And here's what you have to do. You have to break the bondage of that way of thinking. It's called quid pro quo thinking, this for that. So she does this, you do that. And they say about marriage, it's 50-50. It ain't 50-50. It's 100% from you. You've got to learn to think this way. Now, you still have a quid pro quo, but it's not with her. It's with Him. So this for that. So He's loved you, so now you love her. You want to know why you love her? Because He loved you. And if, you, if Jesus Christ were here incarnate and you were to sit down at the table with Him and say, Jesus, so good to be having breakfast with you. Could you just, just give me a quick word before I go off to work? What would you like for me to do for you? I suspect with every one of you who are married, He would say, I want you to love that wife is I've loved the church. That's probably what he would say. And he just gives you his assignment. Your assignment is straight from him, and it's unconditional. 
It's conditioned only on His love for you. So here's the quid, there's the quo. Or here's the quid from the quo, quid pro quo. So it's because of His love for you, you're giving the love that you have for Christ. You're giving that love to her. So for example, if I'm, if I'm irritated with Allison, and you all know Allison, many of you well enough to know, if you're irritated with Allison, something's wrong with you. Uh, I mean, she has mercy coming out of her earlobes. I mean, this, this woman's unbelievable. But you know what? We're all sinners, so I get irritated, you know, every once in a while. Uh, but when I'm irritated, you know, I have a simple solution for it. I'll be in my office upstairs, and, you know, it's in the wintertime, and so I'm going home around 6 o'clock in the evening. All I have to do is I always walk through the sanctuary because I park on the east lot, and I just stop in the sanctuary, and I just sit back in one of those pews toward the back, and the ambient light coming in from the western uh, windows, the upstairs windows, shine right on that cross. You ought to try that out sometime. And you just sit there and contemplate the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What has He done for you? And I tell you what, every single time without fail, I've gone home a new man. Every time. If I'll just take the time to sit before the cross and break my stubborn, selfish heart, and realize why I'm here and who has loved me, who has given me everything I need. I don't have to have my wife. If you have to have your wife, then you just made a God out of her. The only one you have to have is Jesus Christ. And you get all you need from Him, and you repent of demanding anything else from anybody else. And then you go with that fullness of Christ, and you serve this person assigned to you. And show them Jesus Christ. Now, my children can tell you I don't do that perfectly. But I know that's the solution. And I've experienced it over and over again. So we have a goal. And it is her glory, her relationship with Christ. Now, thirdly, the means of our love is nurture. Look at these two words in this, verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. Nourish, or the word is feed. It's, it's, that's another translation. So we feed and nourish. That's how we take care. Secondly, we cherish. Nourish and cherishes. The word cherish can also be translated keep warm. We keep someone warm. We hold them tight. We cherish them because we are members of His body. You know, I, I know some men and maybe especially young men who haven't lived long enough to see how untrue this is. But some men who think, you know what, I have to kind of modulate my kindness to my wife because if I overdo it on any given day, then the next day her expectations are going to be raised and I know I'm going to fall flat on my face. So I think I'll just live kind of a just slightly below average expression of kindness and love and then the expectations will be more realistic and then if I come in and have a good day you know it exceeds expectations by my, my you know what I'm talking about I don't have to go on that's a total lie it works just the other way let me tell you something there's no possible way you can spoil your wife now her parents could spoil her and maybe they did and if they did I'm sorry but you, you as a husband, cannot spoil your wife. Now, let me tell you, let you in a little secret, and this is not Christian motivation. It's kind of a selfish motivation, but it's real. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. The actual uh, the fact is that the opposite takes place. When you lavish her with kindness, she starts to cut you all kinds of slack. It's amazing. So if my wife's tank is not quite full and I forgot to take out the, the trash, she'll say, honey, you forgot to take out the trash yesterday. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. But if the tank is full, she'll say, she won't say anything. I'll notice it. Say, oh, honey, I forgot to take out the trash. And she'll say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm serious. You can't spoil your wife. And it only enhances the relationship that you show them kindness. You nourish them and cherish them. And the most typical thing is that 
you treat your wife like you treat one of your guy friends. And you're assuming that they like the same thing you like. You older men have found out that is not true. Now, it is true that one Christmas recently, because my wife really loves to work with wood, Dick Cowan knows because he used to borrow her tools all the time. And now her Christmas is easy. Table saw, circular saw. One year I gave her three gifts, an air hammer, a pump, and a hose. She loved it. But now, if most of you did that, it's because you wanted the air hammer for yourself. But so often, we're, my wife is unusual. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you treat her like you would one of your guy friends. It doesn't work. You know that. You have to figure out what her felt needs are. Now, we all know, because it's notorious, your, your sexual appetite is off the chart. We, we all know this. Your reputation's out there. So we got that nailed down. We know what your first, we know what your need is. If I've got a room full of women, I know what I'm going to talk about with them. But your problem is you go home and think, man, I'll really treat her. We'll have sex tonight. You got another thought coming. Uh, she's got another set of felt needs. There's something that she feels typically as strongly about as you do sex. You know how frustrated you can get when she's not ready to. Roll around with you. There's something that frustrates her just as much as that. Same level. You know what it is? Kindness. The absence of kindness and courtesy drives her nuts. And she doesn't, she's gotten tired of saying anything about it. But she feels it still and it's suppressed. And it goes just like your sexual frustrations. They get suppressed. You're tired of saying anything about it. You don't talk about it anymore. You just resent it, and she feels the same way. Now, both of you have to deal with your resentments before the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can ultimately deal with this. But as far as you have anything to do with it, your task is not to get more sex out of your wife. Your task is to be kinder to your wife. You figure out what her felt needs are. There's a book called His Needs, Her Needs, written about 30 years ago, maybe more. And it just gives you an illustration of the typical felt needs of the man and the typical felt needs of the woman. His needs, her needs by Willard Harley. And you can just see, if you just read through there, get onto her list, see what that list is, and then make yourself an expert. That's what a loving husband does who wants to cherish and nourish his wife. He figures out what her felt need list is, how she receives care. What are the things she really wants? And then he morphs into a servant to fulfill those needs. That's exactly what Jesus did. What do these people need? They need forgiveness from the condemnation of their sin. Well, I'll pay the guilt offering. What else do they need? They need cleansing from the power of sin. I'll send them my spirit. And right on through the list, what else do they need? They need an answer for death. Well, I'll solve that one. And so by His resurrection and His entrance into heaven, He prepared a place for you. So he morphed his whole life into the deepest needs that you have. That's what Jesus did. That's your role. That's the Christ role in the marriage. So we enter into it to nourish and cherish her. Then notice the context of our love. It is a covenant. First of all, a covenant means a bond. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. That's the word, hold fast. And you'll find that same Hebrew word, hold fast, when... God talks about our covenant with Him in Deuteronomy. We hold fast to Him and He holds fast to us. It's a marriage. And so the main reason this marital relationship is so important is that it is the human picture of a bond, an unbreakable bond that displays the unbreakable bond of God and His people in covenant. Notice secondly, it's a mystery. The mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is this mystery? The mystery of a union of the deity with humanity, with Christ and the church. And what is this mystery? It's the mystery of the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman. It's a mystery. Just like Christ and the church is a mystery. Just like the Trinity is a mystery. Just like the gospel is a mystery. This is a mystery. And so if you're left wondering about this mysterious relationship, don't be too surprised. It is a mystery that two people can become one. And notice thirdly, it's intimacy. However, let each one of you 
love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, he summarizes here at the end. What the wife wants from you are visible displays, heartfelt displays of love and affection toward her. And what you're desiring from her at the deepest level, even more than sex, quite frankly, is her respect. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul knows how we're built. And the Lord knows how we're built because He built us. And we're to give to them what they so long for. I'll close with this. Uh, A few years ago, I was asked to speak to a group of Iraqi pastors and elders who came out of Iraq into Jordan so that we could teach for a week. And uh, I was one of several teachers. But one of the assignments they gave me was to speak about marriage. And I said to them, to my Arab friends, I said, I don't know anything about Arab Christian marriages. We still want you to speak about it. I said, really? Speak about marriage in this culture? I don't know anything about it. So I spent about four hours with uh, uh, an elder and asked him all kinds of questions about the typical marriage. And I found that just as our marriages here, Christian marriages, in many ways take on the fault of secular marriages around us, so is true in the Arab world. The Christian marriages take on the faults of Muslim marriages. In a Muslim marriage, it's typical. On your honeymoon night, first thing is you beat your wife just a little bit to kind of set the stage for how things need to be in the future. I'm serious. And so, it's, in fact, it's in the Quran that you discipline your wife by hitting her. And so this is typical Muslim practice among the folk, the common people in the Muslim world. Well, you can expect then that with this small Christian minority, they've learned from their culture how to treat their wives. And it's very authoritarian. It's very unkind. It's just, it's a dictatorship. So, okay, we've got our work cut out for us. So we dealt with this text. And I could see the Iraqi pastor's wives, they were going, Wow. And the men were going. One of the men raised his hand. He said, Pastor, after I talked about loving your wife, he said, if I treated my wife like that, loved her and gave her all this consideration and deferred to her all the time, her dad would kill me. Because the the father of the bride expects a new husband to get that wife in order. And, And I said, well, I understand. It's deeply embedded in your culture. And there are a lot of things embedded in our culture. And you have to take up every one of them and fight the fight and be a Christian man, no matter what culture you're in. So I just took it on. Well, afterwards, another man raised his hand. He said, I've got a friend who was a Muslim lawyer and he became a Christian. He was married. Because he became a Christian, he could no longer practice law in Jordan. He lives in Amman. So now he sells cell phones for a living. That's all he can do to make a living. And his wife remained a Muslim. She did not want to convert. But of course, when he became a Christian, their marriage changed dramatically. And one day, his Muslim wife said to him, don't you dare think about becoming a Muslim again. Listen, everybody knows, if you take up the script of the Lord Jesus Christ, that marriage changes dramatically. And your wife never wants you to go back. And I suggest you do it for her honor, for her sanctification, and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your instructions to us as Christian men. We pray that you'll help us, for we are by nature self-centered. By nature, we do not want the Christ role. We want other people to serve us. But we pray that you'll cause us even today to rise up and be the men that you want us to be, regardless of the response from our wives. But we pray that you would bless them and bless them through us and through our care for them. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.